Well, welcome to Grace Church. Whether you're watching us online or you're here in person, welcome. We're so glad to be together this morning. Well, hey, maybe you are new to church or you're just curious about Christianity. I want to tell you that you picked a good time to check in because this is the season where we talk about the greatest story ever known in this world, and that is that God sent his only begotten son to this earth because he loved us. And so I love this Christmas season. I love talking about what that means for you and I. So get ready, get set, because here we go. We are in our Christmas season. And it's in this time that we get to talk about not only what he came to do, but why he came. And that is so vital for our faith. So I'm so glad to get into this time of year, aren't you? Well, let's pray. Let's open our hearts, prepare our hearts for what God wants to do in us and through us today. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. God, I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand more of your love, more of what you brought when you sent your only begotten son. God, I pray that every heart would be open to you, whether they're online, whether they're here in person, God, but that every heart would be yielded to your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Christmas is here. Christmas is here. It's exciting, right? Like some of us, we have mixed emotions about it. We get excited because it's like all these things that Christmas brings. And then there's some of us that get overwhelmed about all the things that Christmas brings. You know, we understand this, that in our culture, we know that, that most of the time, Christmas gets buried with consumerism and, 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 and all the things that, that, that tries to take us away from the true message of Christmas. And so that could overwhelm us as believers. It could help, it, it, it could be something that, that, that burdens our hearts because we know that Christmas is so much more than all the fluff and the glitter and the lights. And I love the glitter and the lights, but we know that we're celebrating something bigger than that. And so what I wanted to do is I want us to take time to, to get into uh, this ancient tradition that Christians have practiced through the centuries. And I believe that it will help us combat some of those things, those challenges of trying to keep the focus back on Christmas. It's called Advent. Advent. Advent comes from the word, uh, from the Latin word Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival. It starts four weeks before Christmas. And what it's meant to do is it's meant to slow us down a bit, that we don't just rush right into Christmas, because sometimes it feels like Christmas just comes real fast, and it's over, and, and we're just going, where did it all go? Including my money. Where did it all go? <laughs> but I think that this is an important practice for us as believers to take this time to, 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 to feel the tension of Christmas. And there is a tension in Christmas, especially for a believer's heart, because, it's, because we have to understand the story in, in, in all its depth. And so Advent helps us do that. See, I wasn't raised under that tradition. I didn't come, I didn't grow up in a traditional church where this was something that they did uh, throughout every year, but I have learned about this. I've been introduced to it the last five or six years, and I'm telling you, it has deepened my faith. It has grown my appreciation for what Christmas means and how to prepare my heart for the celebration of Christmas Day. So my hope is that it does that for you as well. I think one of the greatest things about Christmas is when the angels declared that Jesus was to come, he said this, he says that his name would be Emmanuel, meaning God with us. I don't know about you, but that just blows my mind that God would be with us, that God would come to us. And I think that this practice helps us 
to really understand what that really means for you and I today. Not just back in the day, but today. What I love about this practice and and this tradition is that it, it causes us to slow down a bit. Like I mentioned, it causes us to slow down, and I think that's important for us to take that walk of, of that journey through Bethlehem and, and through what all took, took place on that first Christmas day. I think it's important for us to contemplate and to sit in that tension. Remember, I said that tension is important for every believer. This tension that we need to sit in to realize that God loved us so much that he gave up his divine privileges. He gave them up for you and I. And that he took the humble position of a servant. I think we need to sit in that. I think we need to reflect on that. I think we need to take time to really, during this time, if, if the lights and the glitter cause you to think more about that, then, then it's done its job. Because we need to understand that it, this is big, that God would do that, that God would let go of all the privileges of heaven and come down and to be a servant, to be born like a human. And he did this so that we would have a savior, but we would also have a mediator, someone that would mediate between us and reconcile us back to himself. Another thing about Advent that I appreciate is that Advent also restores this heart of appreciation. Uh, anticipation, I mean. Anticipation, it's important. Because I think sometimes we lose the awe and wonder of Christmas. And let me tell you, there is lots of awe and wonder in this Christmas story. But we're so familiar with it that we seem to, 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 to lack that nowadays. And I think the reason why is because Christmas is surrounded by so many traditions, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with traditions, but sometimes they can just bury the true meaning of Christmas. Now, during this pandemic, we've all been challenged to let go of some of those traditions. I think some of us are let down because we're not going to be able to do a lot of the things that we are used to doing during this Christmas season. And I want to say that maybe, maybe perhaps this could be a blessing in disguise, that it could be a time for us to strip things down and go back to the essence of Christmas, of what it really means and what it's really about. So you could be discouraged about those things, or you can look at those things as an opportunity, an opportunity to look deeper, an opportunity to go back to really the really heart and the essence of what Christmas is. And this is the way I would like to describe it. Christmas is the big reveal. You know how when you get a good gift and you see the box and the wrapping and all that, but the best thing about it is opening it up, right? The reveal on Christmas morning. I want to tell you that the essence of Christmas is the reveal. What's the reveal? It's the invisible God revealed himself and made himself visible through the life of the Son. That's what Christmas is about. That's what it's all about. Now, like I said, there's nothing wrong with traditions. I love the Christmas traditions. My family has many Christmas traditions, and and that's all fun. But let's allow those traditions to remind us of the bigger truth, the greater message. And the greater message is this, is that God is faithful to his promises. And that's what you're going to see in this Christmas story, is that God is faithful to his promises. God is trustworthy. See, throughout the history of God's people, if you read through the Bible, you see God's faithfulness, that, that the people of God always held on to God's word because God's word will stand, the Bible says, through all eternity. God is a God of his word. And we see in the Bible that God gives his word, and there was no greater promise to the people of God than the promise of the Savior, the promise of the Messiah, the one who would come not only to rule and reign, but the one that would come and restore all things the way they should be. That's good news, friends. That is so good news. 
And so the people held on to this, to this promise of this king, of, of the one that would come and restore things back. You know, the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he would talk about this Messiah's arrival, and he described what it would be like. He described what we would, we would encounter when he would come. And this is what he says. This is 700 years, mind you, before Jesus' birth. And Isaiah 9, 6 says this. He says, for unto us, that there will be a time when unto us a child would be born. He would come in as a child, and he would grow. And it says that, that a son would be given, that God would give us his only begotten son. And the government will be upon his shoulders, meaning he would carry that authority to rule and reign and not put that burden on people, but to carry it himself. And it says this. This is the way to describe him. It says, when he comes, he will be our wonderful counselor. He will be known as the mighty God. He would be known as the eternal father, and he would be known as the prince of peace. Can you imagine the anticipation that God's people had for this to be fulfilled? The day that he would come and he would be all these things, that he would be described, you can imagine the buildup for this moment, and yet Christmas is the fulfillment of this exact prophecy. That's exciting. That's what Christmas is, this prophecy that he would come and he would be this wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace. And we know that no longer is it a title, no longer is it a thought or, or, or a dream, but it's a reality because we know that those titles belong to only one by the name of Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's the whole meaning of Christmas. Yet we tend to, uh, to allow these uh, Christmas practices and traditions around Christmas to be the thing that makes Christmas for us instead of centering ourselves and our focus around that simple truth of who he is and what this means. This wonderful mystery of, of, of God incarnate, God in the flesh, God becoming man. Have you ever thought about that? Just the, 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 just the magnitude of just that statement that God would be in the flesh. I, I know it's such a mystery, isn't it? It's hard to wrap our heads around the fact that, that the God of the universe would submit himself to be in human likeness. I mean, I know that just blows my mind to think that God would do that. You know, the thing about Christianity that separates itself from all other religions is that, is that our faith, our gospel declares that man could never reach God, but yet God knew that and he came down to reach us, to be like us in every way, to submit himself to the limitations of what we encounter and what we experience in our lives. He came down in every way. And like I said, it's such a mystery in our human minds of how we would comprehend how God could do that, how he could submit himself to enter into our world the same way that we did through natural birth. I mean, that just blows my mind. And we can get caught up wondering and trying to, you know, figure out, like, how did God do that? And for some people, that's a stumbling block to go, like, I, that just sounds so far-fetched. I don't understand that at all. And I don't think we will ever understand that. But what we can understand, what God has given us through the gospel, is that we can understand why he did that. And that needs to be our focus. And that's what Christmas is. And that's what this whole season is supposed to be about, is to remind us of that, to help us get there. And one thing I like about Advent, too, is that it helps us look back. Helps us look back. Look back at the anticipation that, that the people felt for hundreds and thousands of years of anticipating that first Advent to happen. 
The first coming of the Lord, and we need to sit in that tension and appreciate that because we, as believers in this day, in this time, in this age, we get to carry that same anticipation for the second advent when Christ returns. So this is important for us in our faith, to grow our faith, because advent helps us focus on one thing. And what's that one thing? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. You know, part of this Advent tradition is to, um, to give you a physical representation of what Christ brought, what Christ brought on that first Advent. And that's where the candles come in. That's where you might see uh, people who, who observe Advent, they have candles, and each candle has a meaning and it has a theme. And so um, we're going to do that. We're going to do that. And it comes from the Gospel of John, John's account of the Gospels, when he talks about Jesus' coming and what that, what that means for you and I and for all mankind. He says that Jesus came to be the light of life and that he came to pierce the darkness of this world. This is how he describes it, John 1, verse 9. He says, the true light, meaning Jesus, that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. This is how he sets up his Gospel about the life of Jesus. He says, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, he did not recognize, they did not recognize him. He came to those which were his own, but they did not receive him. But listen, this is the good news. He says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, to be born again. He says, children not born of natural descent, nor human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, born of the Spirit. And he says, in the word, Jesus became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us. I love the, the message version of this because it says, Jesus moved into the neighborhood and made his home with us. That's the story of Christmas. He came into our world. Yeah. And it says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, full of grace and truth. The light that Jesus came, he came with the light to illuminate our path back to God. That's what Christmas is about. So each week, we're going we're gonna to see this representation of what Jesus brought, or I like to say the gifts that Jesus brought with him. And that's going to be the, the, the themes for Advent. So what, did, what gifts did Jesus bring with his presence, with his coming to us? He brought hope. He brought love. He brought peace, and he, bought, and he brought joy. So this week, we're going to talk about hope. So we're going to light the first candle of hope. I'm glad that happened the first try right there. <laughs> I was worried about that. Hope. Here we say hope. hope. What do you think of when you hear hope? You know, usually when we think of hope, we use it in our vocabulary to mean wishful thinking. You know, like, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope the Seahawks win today, right? Or the Raiders, right? You guys don't say that. I say that. You know, I hope for this to happen. I hope that they show up. I hope that this happens. You know, we think of it as wishful thinking, but do you know that the, that the biblical definition of hope is not wishing? It's actually a phrase. When you look at the root word of biblical hope, it means this. It means strength to strength. Strength to strength. What do I mean by that? This is what the biblical definition of, of, of hope is this, is that hope is the strength of a person's desire connected to God's faithfulness. Strength to drain. Strength. Biblical hope is a confident expectation of what God has promised. That is hope. 
So what that means for you and I, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we put our hope in him, that tells us that, that we don't hope for something, we put our hope in someone. That's the difference. That's how we can carry this hope. But see, the opposite of that is despair. I don't think there's nothing worse for the human condition to be a person that loses hope, who finds himself in despair in their minds and in their soul. I, I, I seem to, to describe it as somebody who, who cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And some of us understand that. Some of us have been suffering through that, where, where we're just trying to make it through. We're just trying to find our way, stumbling around in the dark with no light at the end of the tunnel. That's somebody who loses hope. That's somebody who's in despair. Yet the good news is that Jesus came to illuminate that, to light that path so that we could find hope in him. That's what hope in Christ means. That's what it does to the soul, to the mind, and to the heart of a person. You know, something that hope is not. Hope is not optimism. Sometimes we think that's what it is, but let me tell you that optimism is contingent on circumstances. Hoping that everything will turn out eventually in the end to our mind's thoughts and to our own desires. God and biblical hope is a lot bigger than that. We don't just hope that there's going to be something good in our future. No, we don't just hope for that. No, we believe that there is good in our future because we believe in a good God. You see, that's the difference. That's how you exercise biblical hope, strength to strength. My desire connected to God's faithfulness in him. Another thing about hope is that hope is not passive. We don't tend to just sit back and just wait for that feeling to conjure up, that emotion to be expressed for us to live as people of hope. We don't just wait for something to happen good before we start to begin to have hope. That's not how it works. No, hope is extremely active, meaning that it takes your part as much as it takes God's part. We have to work on hope. What do I mean by that? Well, let me tell you, hope is a thinking discipline. It's a discipline of your mind before it's an inward emotion. Wow. See, hope comes from your thought life more than your feelings. And what that tells us is that the amount of hope that we carry is determined on what we set our minds on. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians, he says that we ought to set our minds on things above where Christ reigns and rules at the right hand of God. In other words, we need to set our minds and keep our hope in the one who has full authority that is reigns supreme, Jesus Christ and where he stands today. That is where our hope lies. So we got to set our minds on those things. It takes discipline. It takes our thought life to be submitted to the right things to hold on to this type of hope because we know that our hope, again, is not in something, but our hope is in someone. And that's Jesus, who sits at the right hand of God. That's why Advent is so important. And I think that's why this message, when you look at the sequence of, of, of Advent, I think that's so important that Advent always starts out with hope and it ends with joy. Why? Because you, <laughs> for you to uh, experience great joy, you got to have hope. You cannot have joy without hope. So how do we exercise hope? If it is a discipline of our mind, if it's setting our minds on the right things, then how do we discipline ourselves to do that? What do we do on our part? Because I'm sure that's why you're here. I'm sure you're like, okay, I get it, I got it, but now I got to learn how to work this out. And it has to be worked out. It takes some effort on your part. So how do I do that? How do I set my mind? How do I think? How am I supposed to do this thing? Well, I hope that it simplifies with you with three different things here. Simplifies for you, I mean. Here's the thing about hope. Hope looks back. You can write this down. Hope looks ahead, and hope looks around. 
I'll explain what all that means. But I'm going to use the Christmas story as we're going to unpack the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to get into there, but I, I, I'm going to talk about this story about this person in the Christmas story that often gets overlooked. You know, this is the person that's normally not part of the nativity scene. This person's probably not part. I've never seen him part of the Christmas pageant plays. And I'm going to give him some love today. Because I think it's important because what you'll see in this story, it is a brief little story about this person that interacts with the main players of Christmas, which is Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus. This person interacts with them, and I think that he was a vital part of bringing and restoring hope back into these young parents, Mary and Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 22, and just to give you a little background, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit from Christmas Day. And we're going to look at, at weeks, maybe some scholars say that maybe two months after the birth of Jesus. And this is what took, took place. Verse 22 says, When the time came for the purification rites required of the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem, meaning Jesus, to present him to the Lord. A baby dedication. For it was written in the law of the Lord, Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And to, and to offer a sacrifice in keeping in with that, it was said that the law of the Lord said that you needed to bring a pair of doves or two young pigeons. What does that mean for you? Now, well, let me give you a little history here. In the book of Leviticus, the book of the law, Moses said that after having a baby, the family had to do a couple of different things. A woman, after giving birth to a child, would be considered ceremonial unclean. So she would have to go into the temple after a certain amount of time, and she'd have to come in there with an offering and do this ritual for purification. Another part of that law was that, that the firstborn of every family was considered to be of the Lord, for the Lord. And so the family would have to come, and they'd have to bring the offering. That's where the two doves would come in. And they would present this offering, and it would, it would be an offering of redemption of back to the firstborn. So they would buy back their firstborn child. I, I know it sounds crazy, but there's all these types and shadows referring to God's master plan and purpose. It is beautiful. I don't have time to dig deep into all that, but that's what they were doing. That's what he's explaining here. And as they're doing that, something happens, and we're introduced to this guy that I want us to focus in on. It says, verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was a righteous and devout, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. In other words, he had this anticipation in him for the advent to happen, the arrival of this Messiah. Now remember, up to this point, the only people who knew about Jesus' birth and knew what it all meant were these band of shepherds that came in. They had this wild and crazy story. Yet you have to also understand that this was some dark times in the history of Israel. Not only did they have Roman oppression upon them, but they also did not hear from God for 400 years years. Heaven was silent. And yet it says that this man stayed devout. This man stayed faithful. This man stayed hopeful for God to be faithful to his word. It also says this, and the Holy Spirit was on him. You get to see the Holy Spirit at work here. And it revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had, even, before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts with the when the parents brought the child Jesus to do, in, to do for him, man, I'm having a hard time reading this morning, what the custom of the law required, it says Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Think about this for a moment. Simeon is being told by the Holy Spirit 
that he would see the Messiah before he died. Can you imagine that promise given to you? That you would be able to experience this thing that everybody's been waiting for up to this moment in history and in time. Everything you grew up believing as a kid and as a man, and now you're older in your years, and yet you're told that you get to see that, you get to experience that. What do you think he was like every time he entered into the temple? Seeing all these baby boys. I'm sure he looked at all the boys and was looking at them, and he was probably going, is that him? Is that him? Is that him? What about him? What about him? Probably annoyed the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But can you imagine the day that he shows up at temple and the Holy Spirit quickens his spirit and tells him today's the day he showed up, he's born? And you imagine the excitement that he must have felt to think, that's him? And he runs up to Jesus. And this is how he responds. It says, verse 28, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you had promised. God, you're faithful. He's praising God openly in the courtyard. He said, messengers at the right time. Maybe today I'm a messenger at the right time. That's telling you today to don't give up. That God is still on your side. Let me give you some confirmation that he loves you and that he's still leading your life and that you're not alone. That's the beginning of hope. Now, remember when I said that hope looks back? Well, Simeon looked back. What did he do? He started declaring God's promises in the past. And then what I love about it is that he also looked ahead. What did he say? He says, someday, generations after, people from all different nationalities and nations will all get to experience what I see with my own eyes today. God's Messiah in the flesh. And the time is coming. This baby's going to grow up. And he's going to become a man, and he's going to fulfill every expectation of him. It says this, it says, verse 33, the child's father and mother marveled at what was said to him. I think that's an understatement. But then Simeon turns to this family. He looks them dead in the eyes, and he says this. As Simeon blessed him, and he said to Mary, his mother, he says, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and the sword will pierce your own soul too. What's he talking about there? What does that mean? It means that Jesus is going to come, and he's going to reveal all things. It means that the light of Jesus is going to expose the ugliness in the world. How do we understand this a little bit better? Uh, Let me give you an example. Imagine, okay, your circle of friends. Think about the closest people to you, maybe three or four people in your life, your circle of friends. And imagine if one of those people was perfect in every way. That would drive you nuts, wouldn't it? (laughs) Why? Because every time you'd be around them, their perfection would remind you of your imperfection. And I would think that that would strain your relationship a bit. See, Jesus' perfection caused religious leaders to despise him. And they plotted his death. See, that was the burden that Jesus had to bear his entire life. He lived without sin, and he suffered for it. Have you thought about that? The life that Jesus had to live? Even at his birth, though, the Holy Spirit was reminding Mary about Jesus' destiny, pointing to his death, that he would be innocent, but he would die in the place of the guilty. Man, that had to be hard to hear as a parent. Right? I mean, imagine that, hearing that. I couldn't imagine the burden that these parents had to carry as they were raising Jesus. I think what's important for us as we read through this story is that we put ourselves in that place and we carry the weight. We hold on to that. We carry that tension to say, man, man, we should appreciate these people who stayed faithful even when things were not easy. 
when they had to carry this weight of what they had to endure and the faithfulness they had to bring to raise Jesus, to be good parents to Jesus, and to go through these crazy times that we read about. Man, we need to take time to appreciate that, that they carry this tremendous burden, but also appreciate that they carried this unwavering hope within them. Why? Because they knew the faithfulness of God. Scripture tells us that Mary... You'll see this in Luke chapter 2, that, that Mary took all the things that happened and the events surrounding Jesus' birth and all the things that she heard, and it says that she carried them, she pondered them in her heart. She, she, she held them tight. I think that's important because I'm sure there were many times when Mary had to look up to the sky and say, God, when will he come and do all the things that was promised? I'm sure there was nights and moments where she says, how is this ever going to happen? I'm sure there was a moment at the cross and she's seeing her son on the cross and she's like, why did this have to happen this way? And maybe, just maybe, it was Simeon's words that started to come around her mind again and she remembered what he said. Maybe she wasn't lost in that, but she held on to that. And she held on to the fact that he said that Jesus will be the one that would bring salvation, which God had prepared long ago. And it's his work will not only be the light to the nations, but bring glory back to Israel. I wonder if she never forgot Simeon's expression in his face when he held baby Jesus in his arms and proclaimed and prophesied over him. I wonder if she never lost that image of him walking away knowing that the Messiah had finally come, the joy that he walked away with. See, hope, it looks back to God's faithfulness. Can you do that today? Can you look back in your life and look back to God's faithfulness? Hope also looks with anticipation to God's faithfulness in the future. That's where our hope lies, is we know that God has been faithful then, he's going to be faithful tomorrow. But also hope looks around, and it encourages those who need it. See, when we are filled with hope, we can't keep it to ourselves, can't we? I mean, there's something about that in us. When we experience this great joy of Christmas, we have, it only comes through having hope in knowing Jesus. And that hope is meant to be shared. Who in your life needs that type of hope? Think about it. Maybe, maybe it's somebody close to you and you're just unaware because you've been so buried into all the, all the stuff of Christmas. But maybe I'm asking you to take time today to pray and ask the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit to prompt your heart. Just like he did Simeon, say, who needs encouragement? Who needs hope? Who, who needs that message, that reminder of God's faithfulness, that God has a plan and that God loves them? Who in your life? I believe that God's put people in your life that need hope, especially today, especially during this season. I mean, I can't think of a better thing right now than the spread than hope. People are running out of it. But who needs that? Who needs to be given strength? Who needs hope that will not waver? Who needs hope that won't disappoint? I want us to take time to think about that and pray about that. Because that hope needs to be manifested through your life. And I'm praying that that's what we do during this Christmas season. Now, as we wrap up here, um, I, I thought it would be appropriate to close out this service with the time of communion. I think it's important. And if you haven't... Um, got in your elements and you want to partake today, go ahead and raise your hand. We have somebody here in the, in the building. If you're watching online, you can take some time right now to, to rummage through your cupboards and, and find some crackers and some juice or some water, I mean, whatever you want to bring uh, for the communion elements.
But what I love about communion is that communion also looks back, it looks forward, and it looks around. You know, when Jesus instituted communion, he did it during this meal called Passover, during this holiday called Passover. And what's interesting about that is that there's a connection between the two, connection between what Jesus was instituting and something that that was part of their history. And if you know anything about Passover, you know that there was a central figure in Passover, and that was actually the main dish, the lamb, the lamb. What's interesting is if you look at the history and you look at the law and you look about how they would bring the lamb to get the, into uh, this Passover meal, is that um, each household would be required to get a lamb that would be about a year old. And they would, they would pick it out and it had to be spotless. It had to have no blemishes. It had to be pretty much perfect. And what they would do is they would purchase that lamb and they would bring it into their home for four days. They would live with it. Be around it. You can imagine that. Um, I know at my house, it wouldn't go over well. I mean, you can imagine the attachment you can get just having this little lamb by your side. And that tension was made to be there because on the fourth day, they would have the Passover meal and what would be required, they would have to take that lamb and they would have to prepare it for the evening's meal. That lamb that they would take, it was a lesson for their family. It was a lesson for them to pass on what the significance of what God did to free them from captivity. And they would share the story of the Exodus and they, they would do all that, but they would have this representation. They would have this, this, this illustration for their family, for the children they have, so, so they could pass on to the next generation. I mean, this was instilled in them. And that lamb would represent the first lamb during the first Passover whose blood would be required to spread over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass over and not take the firstborn. Some of us know that story. And Jesus would take that imagery, Jesus would take that tradition, he took that picture, and, he's, and, and, he's, and he was there with his disciples, and he would say, I'm that lamb. I'm that lamb. The lamb that came to live with you. The lamb that had to die for you. The lamb whose blood had to be applied. Not on a doorpost, but on your heart. Jesus that day during that first communion with his disciples, the Lord's Supper, he would at that moment institute a new Passover. A Passover to eternal life. So when we do communion together, we are declaring a new Passover. Our ultimate hope is anchored in the declaration that Jesus is the final lamb that takes away the sins of the world. See, that's what communion does. That's what it reminds us of. Communion looks back and communion also looks ahead. So when we do communion, we need to take a moment to reflect on what he's done for us. But we also look ahead. See, there's going to be a day where we don't have to do this anymore. There's a day coming where we're not going to have to fumble around with these little cups and these little pieces of bread. It's called the second advent when Jesus is returning for his bride. 
We will no longer have to remember him. Why? Because we will always be with him face to face. We will no longer be thinking about him because we will be experiencing and embraced by him forevermore. Right? So communion helps us look back, it helps us look forward, and it also helps us look around. This meal is meant to be shared. It's meant for us to do it together. Communion, when we do this partaking together, it means that we are part of one body. That we are all sinners in need of grace and that we would take part of his body that was broken for us and we are all the same. We are all together in this. And that we all need the redemption through the pouring out of the blood of Jesus. So we look around. That's what this means. It's, it's this symbolism of this holy relationship that we have with God and this holy relationship that we have with one another. And that's why this matters. That's why we, the Bible tells us that we got to do it often. So, so let's get ready for that. Go ahead and peel back this, this, this piece of bread. And I'm going to lead us into this together. If you're watching from home, I hope you're ready to partake with us. Even though you're not in the room with us, you're definitely here in spirit with us. moment to reflect on what he's done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this moment to be reminded of the greatest truth, God, is that you sent your one and only son because you loved us, because you didn't want heaven without us. You came to give your all to us, and you lived a life that was pure, spotless, perfect for us, a life we could not live, and you died a death we should have died. And you put yourself in our place so that we may have life evermore. God, let this be a reminder of that precious gift that we all have and receive through you. Help us to look forward, to know that there's a day coming, God, where this is not the end of the story, God, but there's, there's more ahead of us. There's a great future ahead of us, this eternal life with you. So we proclaim both things today in this moment. If you're here in person, could you stand to your feet? We're going to do this together as we stand before the Lord. And I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll partake together. The first one, grab the bread. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, it says, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Take this, do this, in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your body that was broken for us. It says, in the same way, after supper, he took a cup saying, this cup is a new covenant, a new Passover in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's go ahead and take this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. 
Now let's take a moment to look around. If you're watching online, and think about all the people God's put in your life. Think about the body of Christ that's around you, the body of Christ that you are part of. And I want you to take a moment together as we close out, and can we say a prayer for those? Maybe it's a name of someone in this community. Maybe it's just overarching, like, God, thank you for the body of Christ that I'm part of. Can we pray a blessing over them? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for the, for the body of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the people, the community of believers that you've embedded us in. Lord, that we're not alone in this walk of faith, God, but that you've put us in a group. we put us in a community of believers, God, that's going to encourage us, God. And when we feel like we are lacking hope and lacking faith, God, you have people that would come and they would surround us and they would encourage us and they'd speak truth to us and they would, they would help us move farther along. Thank you for them in our lives. Thank you for those phone calls. Thank you for those texts. Thank you for those check-ins. Thank you for those posts. Thank you for those moments, God, where I thought nobody knew. And like Simeon, God, you just brought them into our path and they spoke life to us. We thank you for your body. Let us never take that for granted that you brought us into this glorious family called your church. We're so thankful for them. We pray a blessing over them. Help us now be beacons of hope for them as well, to be encouragers, to be those that will speak life. We thank you, Lord, for this blessed hope that we carry. Help us to learn how to share it and spread it to everyone around, especially during this time of year. We love you, God, and we thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen, amen. amen. Well, I'm glad you joined us today. Get ready as we continue on to this series of Advent. So we hope to see you back next week. God bless. We love you. See you next week.